Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? I want to thank my daughter, Ida, who is no longer here. Uh, she was more enthusiastic about this project than anyone else I've ever been. And it made her miss her hometown, Copenhagen. And, and now we miss her. Uh, and we made this movie for her. So... The honor granted by you, BAFTA voters, means more to us than, than you could ever imagine. Thank you once again. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I'm delighted to say that this week my very special guest is Thomas Vinterberg, whose new film, the BAFTA-winning Another Round, is nominated for two Oscars, Best International Feature and Best Director for Thomas Vinterberg. I spoke to Thomas Vinterberg about Another Round and, indeed, his entire career. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Um, the last time you and I met... You were in uh, London promoting The Hunt, and we did a piece for The Culture Show. And we, we, it was decided that in order to make the piece somehow resemble the film, we recorded it outside in a park, and it was very cold and very windy. But I have very fond memories of that uh, of that meeting, because it was one of those things I did think, this is absurd. Because some of this film takes place outdoors because, because of the hunt thing, we are literally recording this interview outdoors. How, how are you anyway? How do we find you? I've recovered from that experience <laughs> since, <laughs> which was great fun, was, I, I remember. Uh, um, you're asking me, how am I? Mm. That's a long story. Uh, my life is a uh, long row of celebrations right now. Uh, there's been uh, awards and praises for this film, which I'm uh, overwhelmed by and extremely satisfied with. And on, on, on a private matter, my life uh, has been uh, pretty dark the last couple of years as as I lost my daughter in at May 4th in 19. Uh, and yeah, so it's it's very uh, contrasted life right now. And the film is dedicated to her. And obviously she was a very, very big part of the original uh, process. I mean, she was originally intended to, to, to be in the film. Does it mean a lot to you that the film has been as well received as it has? Because I mean, it hasn't just gone down well. People absolutely love it. <laughs> Wow, thank you. Yes, of course, it means something different than normally uh, because it's it's serving another purpose in my life. It's it's honoring her memory. And uh, and to that extent, it, it means the world to me that people 
embrace this movie and uh, likes it. And yeah, so it means a lot. It means more than it will ever mean again, making a movie for me, I guess. Yeah. There is something about the film which is, it's very hard to define because if you explain the setup of the plot, it sounds quite simple, which is that a group of friends decide to experiment with alcohol use during the day incrementally small amounts because they have been inspired by reading that the human body is it 0.05 or 0.005 0.05 percentage too little alcohol in the bloodstream and if you can just correct that they can start to be more spontaneous they can start and at the beginning of the experiment this does seem to happen but this is based on on what looked to me like some kind of scientific research, a real genuine person said that this thing is true, that the human body is, in fact, chemically uh, alcohol depleted. Who is this guy? <laughs> well, this guy is a Norwegian psychiatrist called Finn Skorderud. Um And uh, yes, he said that. And... No, it's not a theory in the world of academia because it takes more to claim that anything is a theory in that world. We claim it and we try to prove it uh, in our movie. But um, Was he sober when he said it? I suppose so, yeah. Okay. But, you know, he, we all recognize the feeling of the problems we have in life becoming significantly smaller after a glass of rosé. And probably maybe also another glass. We also know the feeling of not looking back and being a little bit more creative. And we know the feeling of a conversation that was initially quite dull and polite suddenly becomes a little bit more daring and open and interesting. And uh, we know that this these glasses of wine can lead to self-forgetness. And ultimately, to a lot of marriages. I don't know, Mark. How many? How many? How many married people do you know uh, who met each other sober? <laughs> it's not that well, many, is it? Well, actually, I got to tell you, I met my wife completely sober. I met my wife completely sober, and we've been married nearly thirty years. So I'm the exception that I proves thought, the rule. I thought you was weird. <laughs> no, but uh, no, I, I get that, but. It's it's just to say that it serves a lot of purposes, alcohol. But of course, in in our movie, we also explore the dark side. We also acknowledge that this takes lives and destroys families and creates a, an enormous amount of tragedies uh, all over the world. And uh, so it's so powerful, this thing. So the film reunites you with Tobias Lindholm and with Matt Mickelson, with whom you made uh, The Hunt. And it feels to me like you're, you know each other's rhythms. It feels to me like you, there's a lot of trust between you. Is that correct? Oh, it's, it's very correct. It's with me and Tobias, and I guess now with me and, and Matt as well too, that if we can find an excuse to hang out, we'll do so. <laughs> And let's just call it work. And I guess we have to write a script then. But, but you know, uh, we, we just enjoy each other's company. And more than that, we grew out of the same society, out of the same soil, watched the same movies, uh, 
uh, had have the same heroes. So we have a, uh, an understanding of each other that that just works. Um, so yeah, there, there's. Uh, I think the fact that we know each other this well makes us come further together. Definitely. The society that you live in and that you grow up in is very, very different to the society that I'm speaking to you from now. I mean, we've just gone through Brexit. We are no longer a part of Europe. Um, our whole life has been turned upside down by everything that's been going on. How would you define your national characteristic? Wow, that's difficult. I, I want to say that the movies that I've done in my life, the most similar audience I can find to a Danish audience would be a British audience. Wow. You have sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a sense of humor, which is, you know, uh, which is rare these days <laughs> out of the world. And um, so at least you laugh in the same places as, as we do. But uh, Denmark is a small, shire of hobbits to one extent. It's it's um, it's a very friendly, uh, reasonable, and sometimes slightly mediocre uh, country with a with with a need that suddenly exposes itself to become to go absolutely bonkers. <laughs> you know, we also were Vikings once and uh so there's a interesting combination of um c celebratory brutality and very rational well-behaved life yeah i mean obviously you've worked here and you know you, you did far from the madding crowd which is the, you know the most quintessentially british story do you feel at home when you're here uh, more than when i'm in los angeles Oh, yeah, but that's true of everybody. Nobody <laughs> feels at home in Los Angeles. Los Angeles might as well be the moon, you know. Um, I don't feel at home, but I feel fascinated and intrigued. And I feel that I'm in, in great company. Um, and I feel more than ever what it, what it is to be Danish when I'm in England, because it is very different. Yeah. Okay, but that's an interesting thing. The, the 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 sense of national identity you feel when you're away. I think that is a very common thing. Like if I go abroad, I become proudly British, which I would never feel when I'm here. When I'm here, right. I'm just ashamed. But when I go abroad, I become proudly British, which is terrible. Right. I mean, I coming to uh, come to your country to make a movie. I come to a country. I come from a country with 50,000 words to a country with, a, I think, 250,000 words, uh, which you all use uh, very rapidly at all times. Whereas where I come from, things are being said more direct. I'm being very general now. But, but, but that's the feeling I get. People are... You're wrapping things up in more words than we do in Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> which creates an interesting combination of uh, politeness and 
something sinister at the same time sometimes okay. and something very humorous it's very interesting very interesting so how does that manifest itself in another round in this process of drinking a little drink and the process is they will only drink during the day they won't drink recreationally in the evening although things start to go wrong but at the beginning it is a process how does that tie into what happens when they drink i mean obviously every nation is different when it drinks the british can be quite fighty when they drink but that's not what we see in um, in another round. It's a different kind of drunk. Right. Um, well, in Denmark, drinking is quite liberal. We see drunk children in the streets. Uh, children as, as in 16-year-olds mm-hmm. running around in the streets. Uh, and I, I remember having a guest, again, this is not a Brit, but... A, a woman from Los Angeles in the beginning of this process. She's called Jane. She's a writer. Uh, she's very, very intelligent. Um, and she stayed with us for a week or so. And when she, she met my daughter and she said, so Nana, what are you going to do today? And she says, oh, uh, I'm going to run the lake run. And she said, oh, but, but what's that? And I said, and she said, um, we have to run around a lake and empty a box of beer on time and this woman looks at the dad which was me like when are you going to interfere <laughs> you're not going to let this happen she's she's too little <laughs> and i was just giggling and being scandinavian <laughs> and, and she said but nana aren't you going to get sick and, and nana said oh yes but if we throw up synchronized time will be deducted so that's okay <laughs> And, and and this woman started becoming even more agitated. And she said, what about the police? And then I said, oh, but the teachers are there. And and then this the world fell apart for this woman. And I realized there is something about Danish drinking culture, which is very, very accepted yeah. on one hand. And yet still we talk, we talk about it in a very chaste way. Uh, there's a thick wall between what we say and how we behave somehow. In terms of the, the way that the film, the, the tone of the film is so interesting because, you know, it is a film which is on one level, you know, about grief and, uh, you know, and anxiety and all those things. But it, it is a celebratory film. And I was, you know, I was saying, I was thinking that it's, it's interesting, your first film called Celebration, Festen. But there is a sense of, even when things start to go terribly wrong for some of the characters even when the experiment gets out of hand in the, in the way of any, you know, that's, that's a film narrative. The experiment must get out of hand. The film never becomes bleak. It can be very harrowing at times, but it's never bleak. It always feels like that's like it's vibrant. And, uh, I never, I never felt that it was telling any of its characters off. Right. Well, I'm glad to say this. I, when I watch the old Fellini movies and uh, those kind of movies, there's, it's always uplifting somehow. It's always life-affirming to watch. And we wanted that. We, that was almost like a circumstance for this movie, that it became a life-affirming film. Having just lost a life, it became even more important. And there was no way we wanted to make a movie, a silly movie about four drunk uh, 
guys from Copenhagen. It, it's we we wanted to elevate this to be uh, a life affirming film, basically. So the celebratory element became extremely important and became something we worked very hard worked very hard on um, finding the right music, getting the dance moves right, getting the whole atmosphere of being elevated right was extremely important to us. One of my favorite directors is Ken Russell, who was a very good friend of mine. And there's a fantastic photograph of Ken Russell on the set of The Devils. And he's directing this incredible movie. And there's a huge drinks trolley beside him. And it's like <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning. And there's like champagne and red wine. And and I, I'm kind of, I remember speaking to him once and saying, people didn't drink when they were, he went, of course they did. Everybody did. But that is not the case anymore. And in the in in terms of another round, Alcohol was banned from the set, right? It was, when you were doing the thing, you were doing the thing. It wasn't banned. That's not how we do it in Denmark. Okay, you just don't do it. Well, I was like, let's drink in the rehearsals. Yeah. And, but I got to remind you that we have 12 hour working days and you might have to drive a car or be in front of children during the day. Uh, So that's, that's how we do it. And uh, and I expected them to act. I, I consider it uh, amateurism to just be drunk in front of a camera. Yeah. Uh, and these guys are the biggest cannons you can find in Denmark. And I expected them to pull it off, basically. Yeah. I, I was very demanding in that sense because <laughs> I said to them, there, there was a lot of, on their plates, basically. Uh, you have to be very touching and tender and cry. You have to be very funny and silly catching codfish. And you have to have to be drunk at very, very specific levels. And you have to have a physical fight with your wife and a, a sex scene. And you have to dance. I mean, I, 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 there, there was a lot on his plate. Yeah. Uh, but they like that. As actors, they're a bit like uh, sportsmen who, who wants to pull this off, basically. 
but Lars has had a kind of different relationship with, you know, addictions and alcohol. And it's, he's had great periods when he's really wrestled with that stuff. And when I was watching another round and watching the way in which the different characters go, I was thinking it is interesting because there is that group, the dogma group that, you know, that kind of did change the face of cinema back in the 90s. And you've all had relationships with alcohol, which you've dealt with very, very differently. Do you still talk to Lars? Are you still in touch with him? I haven't heard from him, you know, since the last film, since House That Jack Built. But I interviewed him around the time of, uh, I think it was Melancholia. And he told, you know, he was very upfront about that. He he had struggled with the, the issues that he was dealing with. And he, 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 he was... He was really kind of at odds with himself. He seemed he seemed quite unhappy in a way right. that was, you know, that was genuinely unhappy. Right. Well, let me first say that this film has been made primarily on Coca Cola Zero. I, I I'm not I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, I I simply don't have the time to drink enough. I I really enjoy drinking, but I have too many children and too much going on and. Uh, I think I'm too fearful to let go in the, in the way that lasted with his life. Uh, and yes, he's been struggling with, with this. Uh, I don't know how public he is about that. But apparently he's public when he's telling you. But I've met him uh, recently. Uh, he has not been involved with this movie at all. Uh, we sort of slipped away from each other. Uh, but then we met... Uh, some months ago, and it was um, wonderful to see him again. He 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 was mentally in very good shape, very funny, very sharp, uh, and it was clear that we missed each other. I guess, uh, and we agreed to come a little, to be a little bit. It was actually I, I was at his company, which used to be a scandalous place, yeah, of, uh, in in many ways. And all sorts of crazy things happened. This is Entropa, yeah? Right. Yeah. And then I was there at a party and I realized that the sauna, which has been, uh, where a lot of these scandals have been taking place, was no longer functioning and Lars was not around. So I, I made a, a bet with one of the producers that if the sauna is back and Lars von Trier is back before <laughs> Tuesday, I owe you money. And... Tuesday arrives and, pe- and people call me and says, so, Thomas, are you going to show up? And then Lars sat there and he didn't know why he was there. And uh, it was all, yeah. Anyway, we met and he's in good shape. And uh, I don't know if it's public what he's doing, but I can tell you he's on set again. And, uh, and, and he's shooting something that I think will be great. Great. Well, that's, that's really encouraging to hear. Do you yeah. look back at that dogma time now and do you look back at it fondly? Is there anything you wish you'd done differently? Are you just proud of it? Or you, I mean, I'm still amazed that it actually happened, that you got any movies made under those circumstances whatsoever. <laughs> People called us and warned us. Are you crazy? But they heard about these rules. and Are you going to commit creative or career suicide? Uh... I miss it. I thought it was fantastic to do the Dogma movies. Uh, it was a fantastic time. Uh, we had plenty of fights and stuff, but still, as I've said before, we, we jumped off a cliff together, not knowing whether this would 
kill us or there would be water below us. Um, and that created a huge bond between us. I mean, come on, we called ourselves brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, a, it was a fantastic moment, I think. Uh, it was a spark. Uh, and unfortunately, um, this spark came out of the element of risk and rebelliousness. And when it became fashion or successful, uh, it kind of changed or it totally changed. And, I, and there was no way I could repeat that. I, I felt also with having done celebration, I felt I'd gone down a path and couldn't come further. Right. And I had to turn the other way, which uh, created new problems. Is there any part of you that thinks that there is something really ironic about the fact that one of the dogma rules is that the director shall not be credited and you are now nominated at the Oscars for Best Director? Is there a part of you that goes, that is ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that would have been... I would I would have been punished by the board. <laughs> uh, well, it was ironic already back then. This, these were the movies that made us all world famous, you know, and our names has never been said more than back then. <laughs> but, you know, it was a symbolic rule. It was a rule saying we should abstain from having our own personal taste and life involved in this. Uh it, we should abstain from being au- auteurs, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, in, and in that regard, another round is very far from a dogma uh, film. It's I also... It's, it's a very personal film. It's, it's also interesting that it comes after a work that didn't feel very personal. That, you know, they, you, you did some other stuff that kind of felt like it was more away from exactly what you wanted to do. This felt to me, and correct me if I'm wrong like you coming home right well the other movies that you refer to was written by others yeah and in a different language than my mother tongue yes which changes everything it's just a different ball game it's it's me uh becoming a member of a board of such of yeah. creative sources and participating in that uh, which I enjoy a lot, but it's not it's not my film in the same way. Yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's as if, it's very interesting, this, Mark, because you're getting closer to a dilemma in my life, because, which has followed me through the 30 years of filmmaking that, that I've had, that I have behind me, um, because the more specific you get, the specificness of things, makes things universal. Every yes, time I, I take my every time I take my hands into the soil of my backyard here in Denmark, people become interested. And when I reach for the stars and start speaking English and stuff, it's, you know, a little bit more complicated. And and um but yet still I really enjoy this thing of going to England or wherever I've been shooting meeting people, meeting fantastic film crews, setting myself up in a different way, which you do when you meet people from other cultures uh, and feeling that they set themselves up in a different way. It, there's a fantastic energy in that encounter, 
which I'm uh, very attracted to still. I think that specificity thing is absolutely right. The amount of films I have seen, like if you make a film about a, you know, uh, Mongolian nomads or something, <laughs> the specific details of their life will somehow make the story universal. But if you try and make it universal by putting an American-speaking character in it and a song, it will just appeal to absolutely nobody. And right. I think... I Avoid think... the general. That, that's, that, that's what we always say in, in the writing office. Avoid the general. That's very good. Right. And have you, has that always been your mantra? Uh, it's always been my instinct, but it's become verbalized more and more over the years. Um, and, and also when I watch other movies this year, uh, when I watch Minari as an example. Yeah, which I like uh, very much. Me, me too. For that same reason. I'm 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 interested in the soups that they're cooking and the way they live and stuff like that. I and the story is of course great, but it's more like I'm sucking up all these details. Yeah, which which has grown out of his own personal life. Yeah, I mean that is a film that you can absolutely tell is I mean right down to the fact that the Minari actually comes from his father's farm in Kansas. So even the plant is a very specific actual plant that they're using. And the specificity becomes the title, and uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 a, an example from this year. But there's so many examples of, of that. What else have you seen recently that you've liked, Thomas? What are you? What have you been excited by recently? I saw a great film from Norway called Hope, which also has the same specificity because it was uh, something she experienced herself. I really enjoyed uh, Sophia's film. On the rocks. Yeah, I did I too. It was brilliant. La Lorna was amazing as well. Uh, there's a there's a great bunch of, of films out there. Uh, there. There's there's plenty. One of the things about On the Rocks, which I like very much, but one of the things I enjoyed most about it was it was lockdown and it was just people going around New York, going into places, not wearing masks, sharing cups. It just felt like exactly wow. Just the, almost the, you know, the pornography of tourism. It's like, look, yeah. just going it, places. It feels forbidden. Yeah, absolutely. In a, in a very exciting, exciting way, which, which is uh, not to be too self-absorbed, but which is what people have said about another round as well. They're sharing bottles and dancing around the street and hawking each other and stuff. But yeah, uh, Sophia, Sophia really picks up a, a very classy society part of society in new york in a very specific way yeah yeah which makes me want to be there and uh yeah that's fantastic she has a, a great advantage which is she's not speaking a strange language which only five million people understands <laughs> and i'm very very envious about that first <laughs> i have to ask you the, the, the oscar nominations um have have offers started flowing in because of the nomination? I mean, you know, the thing is, it is the world's biggest movie platform. Has your life been, or your career been in any way altered by the fact that you've been nominated? It's not just um, international film, but the fact that you've been nominated Best Director. And congratulations for that, Thomas. It's it's well well deserved. But Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, uh, it works a little bit differently in the Academy because people watch the films before they vote for them. And that's where the offers starts to come in. So it's not because of the nomination. Right. It's because they've watched the movie. Uh, and yes, offers have been coming in. Uh, and I'm 
flattered and excited and confused. <laughs> Has anyone so, offered you a Star Wars movie yet? That's usually what happens. No, that one, that one but, didn't arrive. It yeah. will do. Star Wars, <laughs> the drunk version. Yeah. <laughs> what would you What would you like to do next? I mean, in an ideal world, if you could do anything, if you had the Michael Cimino Heaven's Gate moment, you can do whatever you want. It would be great for me to develop my own movie, remaining the specificity, but still do it in a language that more than five million people would understand. So do your own movie in in English? Right. Um, But the question is, if if the specificity would still be there, I don't know, but but, uh, that would be great. I just have to find the right movie. But and at the moment, I'm writing on something which I'm very fond of, but that's in Danish. And uh, okay. that's a TV series, which I haven't tried before, which I've been wanting to do since the celebration, actually. Yeah. Uh, so so, that's, that's, so I'm, I'm writing a lot of pages these days. It's been fascinating during lockdown because I had never really watched television at all before. And I've now had a year of watching television. And so I've watched, I mean, things that everyone else has seen. So I've seen all of The Wire and I've just finished, you know, big. I mean, I, actually, I watched all of The Wire twice because I just thought it was one of the most brilliant things I had ever seen. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it before. And I was, my, but it's, it has really opened my eyes. I can't believe it either. No, it's, it's, but I just, for, for ages, I didn't, I didn't watch television because I was just, you know, I always, I had a kind of, I imagine it was a snobbery, but I, I'm, as a film critic, if there are 15 films out every week, that's 25, 30 hours of viewing that you have to do. Right. The last thing right. you want to do is watch something on telly. But uh, right. what, you know... My dad is a film critic, and it's, uh, it's the same thing. But, you know, I think... You didn't ask this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think people are going to run back into the cinemas again. Um, I, there, was a, there was some scientist in Denmark who said it takes more than a pandemic to change the world's habits uh, it takes a, a world trauma such as a world war and uh, they're going to be back on airplanes the minute they can and they're going to be back in the cinemas because people like you Brits understand a good soccer game and everybody starts singing and when everybody starts singing at a soccer game, you all have the same emotion at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's what's so powerful about it. And it's, that's what you get in the cinema. That's what you get from music, but that's also what you get in the cinema. Everybody feels the same at the same time. And that collectiveness can just not be replaced by a telly or by headphones in the street or... You have to be experiencing these things together. And I I think people will remain addicted to that. Well, I really, I mean, I believe that as well, uh, Thomas. I believe that, that cinemas will not suddenly disappear because people have started watching television. I think that people have a need to see things with groups of people. So, look, I'm going to ask you as a kind of final question to bring this to, the, to an end. Um, what's, is it possible to identify the greatest moment you've had in a cinema or one of the moments that you've been in a cinema, because I've had moments in my life, you know, I'm a film critic. I've watched films all my life. I've never made films. I've never wanted to make films. I just like, you know, I'm like Shirley MacLaine in, in being there. I like to watch. That's it. And I can think of four or five 
genuinely transcendent moments in my life from being in a cinema and, you know, watching something up on the big screen. Can you think of a moment from your own cinematic experience that has really stuck with you or given you that kind of almost out-of-body experience? I think when I watched The Deer Hunter, I, I wasn't myself for days or even a week after. I was so blown away by this film. Um, and, I, and I was so young. I was so shocked and I was so receptive because I was so young. Uh, that was that was very that was huge. Uh, I felt that these people existed. I felt that they became a part of our communal family, and that they, that this city existed, and that they met all these crucial images and stuff. It was uh, and and yet at the same time they became my heroes. All these actors. Uh, I grew up being, uh, you know, young when and, and exposed to Hollywood in the 70s. And I had several of those uh, moments. I remember, I remember watching Godfather 2 and they had this birthday party for an actor they, they couldn't afford. And, uh, and the brilliant way this is executed. Uh, you know, that they all talk about this person and they relate to each other and it becomes a, about a lot more exciting things than the birthday person. Uh, fantastic as well. It's fascinating to me. I mean, and I, I, I say this in the, uh, in the interest of honesty, it's fascinating to me that you pick the deer hunter because I can't stand the deer hunter. But here's kidding? the No, I hate it. But here's the, one of the interesting things. We talked about this briefly when we met before about the hunt because I said, obviously, there's the reference to the deer hunter right, in right, the hunt. Right, right, right. But, um, but which, one, which, one, which one was your film? Oh, well, The Exorcist. I mean, that oh, was... Course, yeah. that, I mean, that was just, you know... And also, I mean, you know, Silent Running, the, the science fiction movie, which just completely changed my life. I just... And there's a and there's a there's an animated film called Dougal and the Blue Cat, which is um a, 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 an animation made in France but with English, which again just just completely blew my mind. But it's interesting with the Deer Hunter because the way in and I'll, this is kind of relates to something we were talking about, and it brings it nicely to a close. The way in which I hated the Deer Hunter was <laughs> was was every bit as passionate as the way in which you loved The Deer Hunter. And when I interviewed Lars, I told him at the beginning, because I believe that you should always be honest with people, I said, look, I, you know, I like melancholy, but I have to tell you, I hate breaking the waves. And Lars said, but do you really hate it? And I said, yeah, I really hate it. And he said, how much do you hate it? I said, I really hate it. He said, good, we're going to get on. He said, if you just didn't like it, no good at all. But he said it's the fact that it provokes that kind of reaction is what he wanted. And I think there is something about that in in that. Anything that, you know, the worst thing would be go, yes, all right. Yeah, well, that's that's a nightmare, particularly for Lars. He can't, he can't. It has to be, it has, it has to be out there. I, I prefer that to hate, actually. 
But... <laughs> well, listen, Thomas, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's been lovely speaking to you. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. I do mean this. Congratulations on the, uh, on the nominations because you do deserve it. And uh, Thank you. I hope that we'll see each other in the flesh when all this, uh, when all this is behind us. And Just not in some park, no? Yeah, in a park, really cold, <laughs> for no good reason at all, other than that a bit of your film was outdoors. <laughs> Thomas Vinterberg, thank you so thank, much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Real Mark. pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Well, there we are. That was my conversation with Thomas Vinterberg. Another round is due to open in UK cinemas in June. It is well worth checking out. Thanks ever so much for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, go to our Patreon page where there's lots of video extras. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.